Matthew chapter 21 is our text this morning. If you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 21. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 46. Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46, continuing Jesus now telling another parable, as he did last week with the parable of the two sons. And in this parable, we find Jesus again declaring uh, not only his divine authority, but also his divinity. And in declaring his divine authority, it's really in an answer to the question uh, that the chief priests and the elders had asked him in verses 23 through 27, by what authority are you doing these things? Who has given you the authority to come in and to preach the way that you have preached and to do the miracles that you have done and to proclaim the things that you have proclaimed? And remember now in this moment, as Jesus has come into Jerusalem, drawing up to this final week of his life, he's kind of made a switch. He's been all the, uh, throughout his ministry, has been subtly hinting at who he is. Uh, subtly declaring the truth of who he was, sometimes to a very narrow audience, sometimes just to his disciples. But it was very evident to all the people that who Jesus was was something different than the average person. He wasn't just a regular man. He wasn't just a great teacher. There was something about Jesus that stood out amongst the people. And that's the reason the scribes and the Pharisees hated him so much is because they knew that the people respected him. They knew that the people viewed him as a prophet, as one in authority, because of everything that he had done. And so they questioned him, how, how, where do you get such authority? And as Jesus now has come into Jerusalem, he begins to change, because now he is much more boldly, much more brashly and powerfully declaring that he is the Messiah, declaring that he is the Son of God, allowing the people to gather there and and sit him on a donkey and and escort him in, in in a king's welcome into the city. So the scribes and the Pharisees are struggling with this understanding. They ask him this question about his authority. Jesus responded with the parable of the two sons that we looked at last week. And then even as powerful as that passage was, we come to an even more direct and more powerful passage in the parable that we look at this morning. So if you found your way there, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took the slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, and they among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. 
When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. You can be seated. It's interesting in this moment, Jesus is giving the answer to the question that the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes had asked him about his authority. You remember the question when they had asked, Jesus had responded, well, where did John the Baptist get his authority? And they refused to answer the question because they were afraid of the people. And now Jesus is giving them the answer. He didn't give it to them directly, but now he's giving them the answer through the parables. But what we see here with the questioning of Jesus' authority with the, with the chief priests and the scribes is the same thing that we see happening in our world today. The chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, were asking a question they had no real desire to know the answer to. They had already submitted in their hearts. They had already committed to what they thought about Jesus. Had Jesus answered the question and given the perfect answer, at least in their minds, it would have not changed their opinion of who Jesus was. And we see the same thing in our world because there are people who criticize, question the truth of Christianity, but they have no real desire to know the truth. And so Jesus is pointing this out very carefully that these religious leaders have come to a place that are so hardened in their heart that they have no hope for repentance. Now the passage, the parable that Jesus describes here is, is really very similar to a passage from Isaiah chapter 5. I'd encourage you to go back and look there. You'll see there in Isaiah a story very similar about the vineyards. But what I want you to notice about this story this morning, this would have been a very perplexing story for the people who were gathered around. And the reason it would have been very perplexing is because just the events that happen in the story. We read this story and we find it very astonishing, right, to see the actions of the people there that you had a landowner who planted a vineyard, and then all the, the different things that happened along the way. Now, it wouldn't have been perplexing in such that they wouldn't have understood what was happening because this was a very commonplace thing. As Jesus would have been describing this to the religious leaders and to the people who were gathered around, they would have probably looked off into the distance and saw a vineyard on a hillside. It was very common practice for a rich man to buy up a piece of property in the surrounding lands around Jerusalem and to plant a vineyard there. And because he was wealthy, because he owned other vineyards, he wouldn't stay in that one place, but he would gather the land, plant a vineyard, and then he would go off, as the man in this story did. He would go back home, go off to a far country, and leave that vineyard there with the people who he had hired to work the vineyard. Now, you'll notice in the story that Jesus gives some descriptions. Now, we have to be very careful, because not every, not every part of a parable is meant to be interpreted as symbolizing something. Okay? We have to be very careful in that. There have been times in the past where, where, where sometimes even the most well-meaning preachers have read things into a text that aren't really there. When Jesus describes the vineyard, he's not really describing anything in particular about the things except just to set the narrative of the story, to help draw a broader picture for the people to understand. So when Jesus talks about the hedge and the wine press and the tower, those things don't really symbolize anything uh, significant. He's just describing the vineyard. The hedge would be a thing that he would, the, the owner of the vineyard would put around it, protect it. The wine press was where the wine was actually made. And then the tower was the shelter for the workers, the storage for the equipment, and the position for the guards. But what's the perplexing thing about this story is how wicked the people act in this story. Now, as we look at this, we understand very quickly, as Jesus gives this parable, that when he says that there was a landowner, that this landowner is God. And the landowner plants this vineyard, and he establishes it there, and he puts people to work, 
And he trusts that in time, in due season, when the wine has come in, that he's going to be able to send his workers from his home there to pick up the fruit of the work that he has set forth to happen. He's put all the money in. He's built the vineyard. He put up the hedges. He put up the wine press. He put up the tower. He put these people to work. And so now when all the season is over, he sends his slaves from his house to go back, to go to this vineyard and collect what is due to him, what is owed to him as the owner of the vineyard. But look at verse 35. It says, The vine growers, those who were working the vineyard, took the slaves or the servants of the landowner and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Just wretched behavior, right? I mean, we, we, it's almost hard to wrap your minds around this idea that, that these vine growers, the ones who were working for this man, I mean, they had been treated well. They had a place to live. They had a job to perform. And had that done everything they were supposed to do, they would have been well rewarded at the end of the season. They would have been paid. They would have been given what was deserved to them. But they were jealous. They were desirous. Not only we find from Jesus, they have the desire. They want this land for themselves. They don't want to work for the landowner. They want it for themselves. They want to be in power. They want to be in control. And so as he sends his slaves back, they Beat one, says, killed another, and stoned a third. Now, if you look at the stoning in the context of, of, of Jewish culture, we would understand that the third one was most likely killed as well because stoning was a process that most oftentimes ended in the person who was being stoned also dying. There were some exceptions to that situation, but most of the time that one would have died. And then the Scripture goes on to say that he sent yet another group of slaves after those first three larger than the first contingency that went. So you had more of these. He's over and over. He's he's sending them there and sending them there. And what do they continue to do? They continue to treat them to the same, beating them and killing them. But then he says, I will send to them my son. And they'll respect him. So we see the owner is God. Now the vine growers... The vine growers represent the Pharisees and really, as a sense, the nation of Israel. Because if the owner is God, God had put the nation of Israel there at a place. He had set them apart as His people. He had established them. He had done everything that He had done here that the landowner did for the vineyard, right? He put a hedge of protection around them to keep them safe and to watch over them. The wine press there, He was was giving them the things that they needed. He had protected them, watched over them. But what had the nation of Israel, what had the religious leaders done? They had rejected him. Because the servants that we see in this story are the prophets that God had sent all throughout the Old Testament. So all through the Old Testament, God sent his prophets to the nation of Israel. And they were rejected by their generation. And in fact, we go through the scriptures. I just want to read a few of this this morning to you. Maybe you're not familiar, but I just want to quote a few passages. We look at the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 20, it says, When, when Pastor the priest, the son of Emer, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in the stocks at the upper gate, which was by the house of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 37, And then the officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him, and they put him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe, which they had made into a prison. For Jeremiah had come into the dungeon, that is, the vaulted cell, and Jeremiah stayed there many days. 
And then later on in Jeremiah chapter 38, they took Jeremiah, cast him into the cistern of Malchicah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now in the cistern, there was no water, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank into the mud. Second Chronicles chapter 24, so they conspired against him, speaking of Zechariah, at, at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. First Kings chapter 19, he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So the vine growers in this story represent, I mean, excuse me, the, the, sla- um, the slaves in this story from the landowner represent the prophets who God had sent over and over to his nation Israel, calling them to repentance, calling them to turn back to him. Yet over and over they rejected him and they killed them just as these vine growers did to the slaves in this story. Now we look at this and we see that the reason that the Slaves were sent back to this landowner. The landowner had sent his slaves back was to go one other thing, was to collect his produce, to collect the fruit that was supposed to be uh, produced here in this vineyard. So what is the fruit? Well, the fruit here is the spiritual evidence of conversion. This is the expected end result of the work. So as vineyards grow, uh, uh, grow grapes and the end result is wine, so in the kingdom of God is there expected fruit to be produced. That as people respond to faith and trust in Christ, they obey Him and do the things that, they've called, that He has called them to do, and they continue to live out their life in that evidence. So we understand that if the vine growers um, are the, uh, the Pharisees in the nation of Israel, if the landowner is God, and the slaves are the prophets, then we understand the Son to be very clearly here, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice the word he uses here. He says, they sent, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. In fact, when Mark and Luke reference this passage, they have the, the landowner as saying, he said, I will send to them my beloved son. Which helps us to understand that to know the landowner is to know his son. To know God is to know Christ. To have a relationship with God is to have a relationship with Christ. There is no way to do this. So if you do not respect the Son, you do not respect the Father. This was the point that Jesus was making to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, you say that you know God, you say that you love God, but if you reject me as the Son of God, you have rejected God as well. But now I said that this was a perplexing story. And the reason that this would have been so perplexing to the scribes and to the Pharisees and those people who were gathered around is the attitude of the father. That over and over, even after the servants, the the slaves had been killed, that he continued to send more. And after they were killed, he continued to send more. And then when he was out of servants to send, to collect the, the produce that was due, then he sent his beloved son. This would have been so strange to them, right? Why would any father do something like this? Why would he be willing to send all of his servants, all of his people who worked for him, and then to send his beloved son? Well, we understand it because it demonstrates to us the love and the graciousness and the long-suffering of the landowner. That he wanted, he wanted the vine growers to do what was right. 
And he gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to do what was right. But yet, they rejected him. Yet, they killed those whom he sent and yet killed his own son. So we see that it's a perplexing story. But I want you to also notice here that there's a very provoking question that Jesus asks them. Look at verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Now, I think any of us in this moment, you read this story, you hear this story, put yourself in that moment, listening to what was happening. I mean, again, this would have been so astonishing uh, for, for everyone who would have heard this story to think that someone could act so wickedly, that someone could act with such disdain for someone who had done nothing but good for them. So the easy answer is right. He, he's going to destroy those vine growers. And that's the answer that they give, right? Look at verse 41. They said to him, these are the scribes and the Pharisees answering the question, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Amen. That's what needs to happen to these people. They have behaved most abhorrently. They have acted wickedly. And the only just thing that they deserve is to be destroyed. Now, the thing that the scribes and the Pharisees didn't understand is that they, again, were condemning themselves. They were condemning themselves not only about their own personal sin, the fact that they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, the fact that they had rejected the truth of God, but notice what they go on to say, because they say, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he will rent out the vineyards to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. You see, in their mind, they couldn't see the forest for the trees. They couldn't see what Jesus was declaring here in this moment. Now, they're going to get it at the end because Jesus is going to make it so crystal clear that they have no other way to turn. But in this moment, they've heard this story about this beloved landowner who has done nothing but good for his, his, uh, those who are working for him. He has provided for them, given them everything they needed to do his work. All he expected them to do was to be obedient and to give him the fruit of his reward. And they have rejected him. They have cast him aside. Everything that he sent to them, they have killed, even to kill his own son. And they say the only answer is for the landowner to give these wretches a wretched end. And then that landowner should take that land and rent it out to somebody else who will give him what he deserves. Perhaps more than any other time in the Scriptures, we see the Pharisees have the exactly right answer to something. Most every other time, they're, they're often left filled with their answers. But here, they, they, they have gotten it exactly right because this is exactly what the landowner should do. But it's condemning them. Because as they're doing that, you remember the old adage uh, when, when you were a young person that your parent tells you to not point at anybody because when you point, there's three fingers pointing back at you? This is exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes are doing. They're looking over here and they're pointing at this landowner. But in fact, they're pointing back at themselves. It's this provoking question. Because Jesus asks, he's, he's asking for their opinion. And you can only imagine in this moment, because we know how pride-filled the scribes and the Pharisees were, the religious leaders were, 
that Jesus points to them and he asks them this question. He says, okay, now you, you being the ones who are wise in these things, you being the ones who are the religious leaders and the ones who know about the things of God, what would you do? What do you think that the landowner should do in this situation? You can only imagine that their chests puffed up in this moment and they, they said, well, we know exactly what should happen to these people. So we saw the perplexing story and the provoking question. I want you to look now at a powerful condemnation. So now Jesus here draws all of this to a direct point to them. I love verse 42 for many reasons. The first is the question that Jesus asks them in response. Because he's done this before. And this is one of those moments where he's just driving an even deeper blade into this situation because he says, did you never read in the Scriptures? Now, we read this and can just read this very casually, right? Oh, maybe Jesus is just reminding them of something they've forgotten. But no, this, this would be like the, if, if you're, somebody, say somebody in the room here this morning was, was an expert in some field. Whatever it may be, just pick it in your mind. They're an expert in the field. They've read all the books. Perhaps they've even written the books about whatever this thing is. And, and they're giving a, a demonstration. And somebody walks up to them and they say, well, you know what you're doing wrong is this. Don't you really know how to do this? This would have been such a, a spit in the face to the Pharisees and the scribes for Jesus to ask them this question, have you never read in the Scriptures? Because they were the experts. They were the ones who knew everything, at least in the minds of the people. These were the people who were the, the, the authority on earth about the Word of God. And so Jesus is reminding them here that they have gotten so far off from where God wanted them to be that they have forgotten the very truth of what the Scripture says. He says, did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a quotation from Psalm chapter 118. Jesus refers here to the cornerstone. Now, when we think of a cornerstone today, we may be somewhat familiar with that. You go to any large building. There's one out here on the corner of the church. Uh, you go to you know, any large government buildings, and somewhere on the government building, there'll be a large stone on the corner that has some type of inscription, dedication, the date of the building, of the t- of the, uh, the building on there. And today, it's more of a decorative item. It doesn't really have anything to do with the, with the structure and the stability of whatever's being constructed. But in Jesus' day, it was completely different. The cornerstone was the foundational element of every part of a building that was built. And so for the cornerstone, it, it was, had to be carefully selected. There were men who were trained in picking the cornerstone because it had to be exactly perfect. Because what would happen is the cornerstone would be the first thing set in the construction of any building. And so every line and every angle had to be precise and accurate because they would draw a string off of that line to the left, to the right, and up in order to set all the blocks for the rest of the building. So it was paramount that that stone be perfect for, perfect in all of its dimensions, perfect in all of its lines. So it was literally the, the key part of every building that was built. This is why Jesus refers to it. This stone is the cornerstone of the building. And he's referencing the idea of a builder's rejecting a stone because this would happen. 
As they were inspecting a a stone to be used for a building, they might look at one, and from the outside it looks perfect, but as they begin to look at the lines, they notice that on one side, one of the lines is just a few degrees off. Now, one degree off might not seem like a lot, but if you're building a long building and you're one degree off here, by the time you get to the other end, you may be 10 degrees off. It's going to cause the whole building to be askew. But what is Jesus really talking about here? Jesus is not talking about constructing a building. Jesus here is talking about the establishment of the church. The establishment of faith, the church of God, what it means to be in relationship with God. He says, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus now here is declaring himself as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the chief cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. He is the establishment of the church. And so when he says it's the stone which the builders rejected, he's pointing the finger back at the scribes and the Pharisees saying, you are the builders in this situation. You have rejected the cornerstone which God has established. But God set it in place and it will come to be. Because he is the cornerstone. God has set it, but the religious leaders had rejected it. Now what's interesting is that the New Testament is replete with scriptures that demonstrate the cornerstone of Christ and condemn the actions of those who rejected him as this chief cornerstone. John chapter 1, verse 11, he says, He came to his own, and those were his own, did not receive him. The builders rejected the cornerstone. Acts chapter 4, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Romans chapter 9. But Israel... Pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in me will not be disappointed. Over and over and over again, we see this declaration of Christ as the cornerstone. So Jesus now points to this and he says, You who claim to be the authority, you who claim to know everything it is about God, you have rejected the very cornerstone that God has set to establish His church upon. The very one who's been promised all throughout the Old Testament, the very one who God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to declare, you who say that you respect the prophets, you who say that you listen to the prophets, you have killed them all, rejected their message, and rejected the very thing, the very one whom they were proclaiming. But notice Jesus goes on. Verse 43. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Jesus says the very condemnation that you gave to the vine growers is the condemnation that God has given to you. The scribes and the Pharisees said that the landowner should destroy those wretches and then give the vineyard to someone else. And Jesus says this is exactly what God is going to do. You have rejected the landowner. You have rejected his servants. 
And Jesus is, is, is utterly proclaiming with such crystal clarity his own death in this situation. Because just as the vine growers killed the son of the landowner, the scribes and the Pharisees are going to kill the very son of God. And just as a side note, because I think it's really important and we don't have time to really dig all the way into it this morning. But notice verse 39, because not only does Jesus describe his crucifixion, but Jesus describes the location of his crucifixion. Because it says that they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And remember, Hebrews says, let us go to him outside the city. Jesus was crucified outside the city. So with such crystal clarity, Jesus is describing everything that's going to take place. But this is such a powerful condemnation to the scribes and the Pharisees because, brothers and sisters, we have to understand this was everything to the people of of Israel. They had built this system, not only the scribes and the Pharisees, but the people as well. This system of, of, of sacrificial system of going to the temple and serving God in the way, this was everything to them. This was not, the Jewish faith was not just an addendum onto their life. They, they didn't just do whatever they wanted to do and then just practice Judaism whenever they wanted to. It was Judaism and then everything else. This was life to them. So for Jesus to say now, everything that you have hoped for, everything that you have dreamed in, everything that you have given your life to, God is now going to take it away from you and give it to someone else. Well, who else could he give it to? The only option in this understanding is that he's going to give it to somebody who's not Jewish. That he's going to give it to someone who is not Israel. That he's going to take it away from them and give it to those who are outside of what they would see as the covenant family of God that is going to the Gentiles. He says because he's going to give it to a people that will produce the fruit of it. And again, what is the fruit? Well, the fruit is faith. The fruit is repentance and trusting in Christ. And, and we see bearing fruit and keeping with repentance is what, is, um, what, Jesus, uh, what John the Baptist said. Uh, He says, you brood of vipers who warns you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Paul in Philippians says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Colossians chapter 1, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. To bear fruit is to do the work of the kingdom. To bear fruit is to be in the kingdom. To bear fruit is to be in Christ. What did Jesus say in John chapter 15? I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus says to them over and over, God has given you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. He has sent his servants to you and you have killed them. He sent more servants to you and you killed them. He has sent more servants to you and you killed him. And ultimately he has sent his son to you and you're getting ready to kill him. And so in response, God is going to take away from you everything that was yours. And he's going to give it to someone else. He's going to give it to a people. He's going to give it to a, a group. He's going to give it to the church who will bear the fruit of what he expects to receive. And that, that what he expects to receive is repentance and faith. So it's going from Israel to the Gentiles. It's going from the Jewish faith to the church. Romans chapter 9 
He said, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They should be called the sons of the living God. Now this does not mean that the nation of Israel is without hope. This does not mean that because God has done this, that there is no hope. Because later on in the book of Romans, we find this. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So there's a strong condemnation that God delivers on to the nation of Israel here. But God has promised them. God is a, not a covenant breaker, but God is a covenant keeper. And so even though he is condemning the nation of Israel for what they have done, he says, and for this time, he's like, I am taking this from you and giving it to another people. There is still a time that God will fulfill his promises in the nation of Israel. And he will draw those people to himself. He will draw them to come and to know him as their Messiah. But now there's a judgment coming. As Jesus continues, look at verse 44. He says, And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. This is a, a powerful picture of the judgment that is coming for those who reject Christ. That this cornerstone that had been rejected, had been established by God, that those who do not respond in repentance and faith, that those who do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance, those who are not demonstrating obedience to the landowner, those who are not demonstrating obedience and faith and producing the fruit that is expected, they will ultimately be destroyed. says those who fall upon the stone will be broken to pieces. It's this idea of judgment and destruction. So those who reject Christ. But then it says on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The, the language that is used there is the idea of being crushed to powder and scattered into nothingness. Now, partially this was fulfilled in the nation of Israel in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Now, I think we can't, we can't, we're getting ready to get into some, some very... Um, powerful parts of the book of Matthew where that understanding of what happened in AD 70 uh, is, is so perfectly demonstrated in Je what Jesus is talking about. We hear about the destruction of the temple. We think about it being a tragic thing. Now, most of you in this room weren't here, but, but this church uh, burned about 12 years ago. Okay, The, the fellowship hall on the other side, we had a, a very uh, tragic thing. The, the building burned down. And when a church burns down, you know, it's an interesting situation because people are very saddened by that because people have memories established with the building, things that have happened there. They've seen people come to faith and, and memories that they have. And so anytime something like that is destroyed, it's, it's very sad and very tragic. But it would have been even more so for the temple in AD 70. The destruction of the temple in AD 70 was not just a building burning down. For the nation of Israel, they would have saw this as a complete, utter rejection from God, as a complete judgment upon them and exactly what it was 
Well, because when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, this was the perfect fulfillment of everything that Jesus said. God is going to reject you as a nation. God is going to reject you uh, as his people. God is going to reject you and bring judgment upon you for the things that you have done to my son. So it was this culmination of God saying, okay, you won't worship my son. I'm going to make it so that you can't even worship anymore. I'm going to destroy the place that is the foundation of your worship, of your declaring truth and doing sacrifices. So this is partial fulfillment of that happened there in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. So this powerful judgment that God gives here in this moment, that those who reject the truth of who Jesus is will be utterly and completely destroyed. And this is not just for the nation of Israel, brothers and sisters. This is for anyone. God has sent His Son. And for those who reject His Son, destruction will fall upon them. For those who reject the truth of who Jesus is, judgment is coming. It's very easy for us to look around the world that we live in and question, why would God allow certain things to happen? Why would God allow certain wicked people to do the things that they do? Brothers and sisters, take open the fact that no one escapes from this world unpunished. Everyone must give an account for their sins. For those of us who are in Christ, it's not that our sins just disappeared. Payment was made for our sins in Christ on the cross. But those who die without Christ, punishment is made in their own self for their sins. Judgment is coming. I heard not too long ago somebody making a very uh, uh, trite joke about uh, about God and about going to hell and all these things, and really the world looks at it as a joke, right? They don't believe in God. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe in punishment. They think that when they die, they'll just basically talk off to God, and they can't really do anything about it. But brothers and sisters, there's coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And those who refuse to bow will be made to bow before a just and a holy and a righteous God. And they will be utterly crushed to powder before a holy and a righteous God. Now, with such a story, with such a parable that Jesus has given to these people, you would think that in this moment, the only response, right? We know the only response of the parable of the landowner was to point out how wicked these vine growers were and how much justice needed to be poured out upon them. So now Jesus has pointed this out. He says, you are the ones, as Nathan did to David. You are the one. You are the one who is doing this. You are the one who I'm giving the story and this example of. What would the proper response be of the scribes and the Pharisees in this moment? The proper response would have been for them to fall down upon their face before Jesus and say, Father, have mercy on us. We are wrong. We want to repent. We will trust. We will believe. We will serve you. But I want you to notice, we've seen the perplexing story, a provoking question, a powerful condemnation. Now I want you to notice a pitiful reaction. It says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. The scribes and the Pharisees had a very clear understanding of what was happening here. There was no doubt in their mind what Jesus was saying, there's no doubt in their mind who he was saying it to. They clearly understood in this moment that Jesus was talking about them. 
They couldn't say, well, God, we didn't know. We didn't understand. This is a very clear understanding. And brothers and sisters, God has given this same clear understanding to every person in this world. Because every person, Roman tells us, knows that God exists. Every person knows that God is real. Whether they choose to acknowledge it or not, whether they choose to deny the truth that is in their hearts, every single person on the face of the earth knows the truth of God's existence. They have a clear understanding of it. But with that clear understanding, they made a determined rejection. They decided that even though I know the truth, even though I know who God is, even though I know who Christ is, even though I know and understand what Jesus is saying so clearly in this moment, promising the destruction of us by God himself, they're going to follow their own sin. Why? Because they're demonstrating that they were just like the vine growers in the story. They had no respect of God, no respect of his people, no respect of his son, and they were only out for themselves. The vine growers wanted the vineyard for themselves. They thought if they destroyed the servants and ignored them and they killed the son, that they would inherit the vineyard for themselves and they could do everything they wanted to fulfill the lusts of the flesh for themselves. And this is exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes wanted to do. Now you think about that, and it's kind of confusing, right? Because these are supposed to be religious leaders, but these are men who are filled with pride and greed and arrogance and disdain for the truth. And they thought, if we could just get rid of Jesus, then we can just continue doing what we've always done. If we can kill the Son, then we can have the vineyard for ourselves. It's a clear demonstration of a lack of faith. So tragic to see men who were supposed to be the ones who knew everything about God, clearly demonstrate that they knew nothing about the truth of who God was. As we draw to an end, I want to point back to a few things that we see in this parable. They should bring us great hope as the people of God. The first thing is that we see God's provision in this. Because he did establish this vineyard and he put his people to work in it. And he gave them the things that they needed. He gave them what they needed to do the work. And brothers and sisters, God has established the church. And he has given us the things that we need to do what he has called us to do. He has given us the, the actions and the abilities and the wherewithal to go and to do the work in the vineyard, to do the work in the kingdom of God so that we can bring to him the fruit of his reward. We see God's long-suffering in this passage. That he sent his servants over and over and over and over and over and over again to his people. God is a long-suffering God. Most of, in this room, most of us in this room would not be as long-suffering as God is. Most of in this room, in this room, we are quick to judgment. We are quick to anger. But we should rejoice in the fact that God is a long-suffering God because for many of us in this room, God was long-suffering with us before we came to Christ. We sinned against Him. We rejected Him. We, in a sense, are the same as the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees because we killed the servants of God in our rejection of the truth. God sent the gospel to us and we rejected it. God sent the truth to us and we rejected it. But one great and glorious day through God's long suffering, we came to faith in Him. 
God is long-suffering. This is an encouragement to some of you in the room who have children, parents, co-workers, neighbors who are far from Christ. God is long-suffering. We should rejoice in that knowledge and that fact. But we also see God's grace and mercy in this passage because He did send His Son. He sent His beloved Son to the vineyard to do that work, and God has sent His own Son to this world to die on the cross. And who did He die on the cross for? He died on the cross for those who had rejected Him. He died on the cross for those who had rebelled against Him. He died on the cross for even some of those who had nailed the very nails into His hands and feet. God's grace and mercy is evidence in the fact that even after all of those servants had been killed, God was willing to send His own Son into this world to redeem His people back to Himself. And we see God's judgment. I think sometimes as Christians we can be very tempted uh, or, or have the, um, the tendency to not think enough about the judgment of God. Because as Christians, we have the precious promise that we're not going to face the judgment of God. Because our wrath, the wrath of God has been poured out on our behalf on Christ. And so it's very easy for us to not consider the judgment of God. But brothers and sisters, we need to be keenly aware and pray that God on a daily basis would remind us of His judgment that is going to fall upon those who are far from Christ. And it's not going to be a slap on the wrist. It is going to be a complete and utter destruction of them. And the reason we should pray that God reminds us of that each and every day so that we, when we are out in the world, and we're at work, or we're at school, or we're with family members, or wherever we may be, and we see people who are far from Christ, that we would be brokenhearted for those people. And that we would desire to give them the truth of the knowledge of who Jesus is so that they will not fall under that judgment unprepared. That they will not be the ones who are crushed by the cornerstone. But they will be ones who are built upon the foundation of the cornerstone of who Christ is. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth of the Gospel. And Father, what a a powerful parable Jesus gives to us here. Lord, what a reminder for us to be keenly aware in our own lives of who we are and who we are in Christ. Lord, we pray this morning that we will, in this moment, as we reflect on Your Word, Lord, allow Your Spirit to do its work in our heart. That the Holy Spirit, that He will have full reign in us today. Lord, may we rejoice as those of us who are in Christ in the knowledge of knowing that we are built upon the sure and solid foundation of the cornerstone. But Father, if there's one person here this morning who falling under the hearing of Your Word has realized that they've never truly put their faith and trust in Christ. Perhaps they've been like these religious leaders who have all the words to say, all the knowledge, all the social status. They could put on a good show. But Father, they know deep down inside they've never fully trusted in Christ. Your Word tells us that today is the day of salvation. That we should not put off the working of the Holy Spirit in our heart. Father, we pray if there's one person here today 
Lord, you will draw them and they will turn to you in repentance and faith. And Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.